that you as the cornerstone is immovable. Um, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, I pray that your uh, immovableness would be for us everything that we need it to be today. Lord, for those that are here this morning, um, and maybe all of us, Father, in different areas of our lives that feel unstable, that feel shaken, Lord, we pray that we would feel the firmness of who you are beneath our feet today uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit and the promises of your word. Uh, be with us now as we look into your word. God, we commit this time to you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would do a miracle in our hearts and, again, transform us more and more into the image of Christ. In your holy name I pray. Amen. Good morning. You can have a seat. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Uh, maybe go to Romans 8. We'll be all over. Um, as I've been saying here for quite a while, the last several weeks over the summer, we've been going through our doctrinal statement. Um, if you guys got one of these uh, handouts this morning as you came in, what we're going to be looking at today is the security of the believer. Um, this is said and has been said in, in different ways uh, throughout history, the security of the believer, eternal security, uh, the perseverance of the saints. There's several terms, um, three terms actually, that I want to work our way through this morning, and uh, they all kind of fit together, but, um, but they're slightly nuanced and slightly, slightly different. Um, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, this. It says, what is the chief end of man? Or what is the chief purpose of man? They say the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I've shared this with you before, um, but when it says man's, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, it sounds like two things, but it's really one thing. Because it doesn't say what, is the chief, what are the chief ends of man, but what is the chief end of man. And so you can say it another way, simply that man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, is that God wants us to enjoy not only who he is, but the salvation that we have in him. And in our joy, in our satisfaction in who he is, he is glorified, okay? As uh, John Piper's ministry, Desiring God, he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I believe this wholeheartedly, that our chief end is to be satisfied in God forever. And this issue that we're going to talk about today, about the security of the believer, some terms that we're going to be looking at are preservation, perseverance, and assurance, and I'll explain a little bit more what I mean by those in a second. But this hits right at the heart of whether or not we're able to bring glory to God by enjoying him forever. God is not glorified uh, in this world in a fearful, unbelieving people. He is glorified in a people that trust that he is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. And his word from beginning to end makes it abundantly clear on what he's going to do. <laughs> is that he came to save a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. He is the Savior. He saves. Salvation belongs to him. As we looked at a couple, a couple weeks ago when we talked about soteriology in this doctrinal series. And today what we're going to look at is how God is able to keep to the end those who have been truly saved by his grace and by 
his power. The three words that I want to unpack uh, during our time together today that, that, that tie into this, again, the security of the believer, the eternal security, would kind of be like the broad heading. Underneath that, there are three terms that are often used interchangeably, but they don't mean exactly the same thing, yet they are part of the same family, um, and they all have to do with this idea of our security in Christ, and they are, and I already mentioned them. They are the word preservation, perseverance and assurance. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page, let me give you a working definition of how I'm going to be using those words this morning as we talk about them. First of all, preservation. Preservation is simply God's promise to keep or to protect or to preserve, hence the word, to preserve those that he has saved, that God is going to keep us, and we're going to talk about that. Perseverance is simply the outworking in our lives of God's preservation. So God is working to preserve us to the work that he began in us to see it through to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, as it says in Philippians chapter 1. Perseverance is simply the outworking or the fruit of God's preserving work. And then assurance, <coughs> excuse me, which we'll talk about last, is simply our sense of a conscious confidence that Christ is not going to fail, that he is going to preserve us, and therefore that we are going to persevere by his grace. Preservation, perseverance, assurance. And if you didn't catch all those definitions, we will talk more about them as we go through them. But first of all, God's preserving work, that God promises to keep all those that he has saved. Let me just give you some Bible for this right off the get-go here, and then uh, it's all over the place. And again, we don't have time to look at every, every place, but um, we'll talk about as much as we can this morning in the time that we have. John chapter 6. Verse 37 says, all that the Father, this is Jesus speaking, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, the Father. So Jesus comes to do the will of the Father, this is the will of the Father. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That all that the Father draws to himself, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, um, he is going to save, and he's going to save to the uttermost. He's going to see us through to the end, and he's going to raise us up on the last day. Verse 40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, also in John chapter 5, it says that those who have believed in the Son have passed from death to life, that eternal life is not just something that starts someday, which is usually the way that we think about it, and that's of course is also true, but eternal life starts the moment that you believe in Jesus. And folks, it's not eternal till Tuesday. It's eternal, eternally. That's why it's called eternal life. John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now what is the imagery that Jesus is speaking of here? He's speaking of all those who simply look to the Son, who believe in Christ, we are transformed from his enemies to his people, or as he puts it here, his sheep, okay? And <clears throat> he's saying that you are in my hand. No one can snatch you out of my hand. Not only are you in my hand, you are in my Father's hand. This is how he's describing our salvation. And no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand, okay? 
Now, I want to I ask you a question. Just be honest. You don't have to raise your hand. Many times this verse is brought up, and I believe just for the sake of argumentation and trying to defend their doctrinal position, people that believe that you can actually lose your salvation if you're truly saved, they will say, yes, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, but you can choose to turn and walk out if you want to. Has anybody ever heard that before? Okay, don't, I told you not to raise your hand, so don't raise your hand, I guess. But people say that all the time. And now, if we can just sit for a second, okay, and if I can just shoot really, really, really straight with you. Number one, the text doesn't say that, correct? Right? Okay. Number two, do you think Jesus is giving you this metaphor, saying, no one can snatch you out of my hand? You know what? The Father's even greater than me. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. You know what? The reason he said that is so that you can know that you might fall off the ledge. That's, that's why he said that. I think that's why he said that. He wanted you to know that you're really secure, but don't you think, don't, don't think you're too secure. I want you, no, that's not the intent of those verses. Yet we kind of get cheeky with it and just kind of make things up um, just to kind of fit our doctrinal bents or the traditions that we come from. Let me just say something up front here this morning and make this abundantly clear. I mean, I'm probably already tipping my hand, no pun intended. Um, Listen, this whole thing about like, if we're secure in Christ, that, and, and as I'm arguing this morning, that we cannot lose our salvation, and everybody somehow thinks, well, well if, if that's the case, then I guess I can just go do whatever I want. You understand that Paul answers that exact argument in the Bible. Like in Romans chapter 6, because if you're truly preaching grace, then the implication is, is I'm free, I'm saved. He has covered all my sins, past, present, and future. And Paul knows that this argument is going to come up. And so he says, preemptively, in Romans chapter 6, he says, well, what should we say then? Should we just continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, oh, so I can just go do whatever I want? He knows that somebody's going to make that argument. And Paul says, no, it cannot be. Because we who have been born again, who have trusted in Christ, we have died to sin. And this goes back to understanding the essence The nature of our salvation is that if you are truly saved, a miracle happened. You once were dead, but now you're alive. Once the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit loves holiness, he once did not live in you. He now lives in you. You have been sealed with him until the day of redemption. See, there's all these things that happened that it's like because we don't understand the, what actually happened at our salvation and what the Bible teaches about it is we think that somehow we're going to lose it because we think that it ultimately depends on us. I'll say it again, just like I said a couple weeks ago when we were talking about this. Salvation did not ultimately happen because of you. It happened because of the sheer, unmerited grace of God. That's how it works. Salvation belongs to your man. Like, whoa, that, What? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it's absolutely amazing. And all those that he saves, he's going to see through to the end. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. It's like a benediction. It's, it's, like it's kind of like a prayer, but not really a prayer. It's more Paul like stating, speaking this over the Thessalonian people, declaring that this is true. It's a declaration. Of sorts. Um, I hate to do this. This is just 
pause for just a second. Can I get a glass of water? I don't know what's wrong with my mouth this morning, but my tongue is literally sticking to the roof of my mouth and I can barely go on. Okay. Excuse me. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Paul says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body, and all of you, we're body, soul, and spirit, so all of you, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Let's pray and go home. What else do we need? The language in there is so strong that the God of peace himself is going to sanctify you completely. What part of you? Your spirit, your soul, your body. You will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you, because remember, salvation starts with him, not with us. He who calls you, who called us to himself, is faithful. He will surely, not maybe, not possibly, he will surely, he will certainly do it. Folks, this is our great hope. That God is not going to stop working on us. He, thanks, Conrad. Conrad is, you have no idea where we'd be without Conrad. Probably shouldn't have crunched on an ice cube with the mic on. Okay. <laughs> this is going great this morning. Um, if you got your, on your little hand out here, let me, I, I the, let, let me, well, let me, I haven't even read our doctrinal statement yet. Let me read that. It's short. The bold letters at the top. Let me, read, let, let me read from the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, we believe that all the redeemed once saved are kept by God's power and are thus secure forever. God's word encourages believers to rejoice in the assurance of their salvation. Oh, you got, okay. Drink some of this too. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Okay. God's word encourages believers to rejoice in the assurance of their salvation, but clearly forbids the use of Christian liberty as an occasion for the flesh. Okay. Look at the Heidelberg Catechism. I, I love this. Um, I, I don't want to freak any of you out, but if I ever get another tattoo, I'm getting the Heidelberg Catechism tattooed on me. I love this. I love this. Again, it's, it's these words, I, this isn't scripture, but it's such a good summary of the scripture. It is, it is true, and I, I hope that you will leave here today believing that this is true. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Man, we're not playing games. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about ultimate reality. What are you going to do? What are you going to give in exchange for your soul? Jesus said, what, what would profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. 
He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. In Christ, there is nothing that can get to your life, nothing that can get to your life and would maybe be painful or hurtful or make you doubt and, and, and maybe cause you to fall away because everything that ultimately comes into your life is under the sovereign hand of God and he is working all things together for good in your life to bring you about into Christ-likeness, to form us into the image of Christ. Jesus is no partial savior. Those whom he saves, he saves to the absolute uttermost. If you'll just look at this logic in, uh, on the back of your paper there in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, okay? And again, we could spend the whole morning just unpacking this. I got to keep going here. Verse 29 it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice how Paul even speaks of it here in the past tense that he has glorified us, even though glory is coming. Why does he speak like that? Because that is how certain it is. He goes on, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Now, now, do you understand what he's saying? The one that we've sinned against, the reason that we needed to talk about salvation a couple weeks ago, or soteriology, as it's formally called, saved from what? We are saved from the wrath of God. He is the one whose punishment we deserve, every single one of us, because we're sinners and have rebelled against him. But he offers us eternal life simply by faith in his Son. So do you understand the logic of what he's saying here? He's saying, if, if God is the one whom we've sinned against, he's the one that we ultimately had to fear, yet he's made a way for us to have salvation and escape that punishment, and not only to escape the punishment, but to have eternal life. And so he's the one that has saved us, he's the one that has called us, he's the one that has justified us, he's the one that is going to glorify us. So if that's the one who we sinned against, if we're okay with him now, like not only just okay, but we're his children, we're his sons, we're his daughters, we're not his enemies anymore, we're his friends. If he's for us, who can be against us? If, that, if that's been settled, how, what, how am I going to lose something? He's the one that saved me to begin with. He goes on here, and, and listen, he goes, who's to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised to life, and what is Jesus doing now? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, we've talked about this several times over the last six months as we've hit on this um, in different places in the scriptures we've been going through it. But the high priesthood of Christ, his intercessory work, that he's not just sitting at the right hand of the Father chilling with a lemonade in his hand, but he is actively interceding for us, watching over us, protecting us, and seeing us through to the end. Now, this whole thing, this issue of whether or not you can actually lose your salvation if you truly have it, it always comes down to, well... What about if I, if, I, if I stop believing, if I, if, I, um, if I no longer trust him, okay? 
Now, here's the thing. You're right. We have to trust him to the end. But Jesus is the one that's going to make sure that that's going to happen. Let me show you. Speaking of that interceding work that I just mentioned there in verse 34 of Romans chapter 8, listen to how this played out in Simon Peter's life in Luke chapter 22. You guys know the story. It's right before Jesus is about to be betrayed. And Peter says that he'll go with Jesus right to the very end because Jesus has been predicting his death. But Jesus knows that he's going to fall. And he says in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So here's what Satan wants to do. He wants to, a sift is like, a, what's that thing that we rinsed, a colander? You know what a, like a, like a, you know what I mean? I, when you make macaroni and cheese, you know you do. You can tell my high level cooking skills. Anyway, but you, you put it in there and you rinse it and the water goes, and the, you know, or any dirt, like if you're rinsing rice off before you cook it or whatever. It, you're rinsing it and the rice stays in and the dirt or whatever falls off. Satan wants to do that to Peter. He wants to press Peter down through the sieve of trials and temptation, and he wants to keep his faith up here. He wants to separate Peter from his faith. He's, Jesus says, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but what? What is Peter's hope? Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. And what did he pray for? He said, I pray that your faith may not fail. That is exactly the same type of interceding work that Christ is currently doing. That he stands forever, risen from the dead, to see through to the end all those who have trusted in him for salvation. God will preserve you all the way through to the end. Let's keep rolling here. I spent more, on, more time on that than I had originally planned, but God's preserving work. Secondly, perseverance. Perseverance is the outworking of his preserving work in our lives, okay? So do we need to persevere to the end? Yes, absolutely. And we do this not in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Again, perseverance is something that we co-work with Christ in. It's like sanctification, I would argue that justification is monergistic, it's God's sovereign work. Um, sanctification is synergistic, that we work with God in this, in this process, but it's him in us, not just outside of us somewhere, showing up every now and then, he is in us to see us through to the end, okay? Um, probably the most central place or, or the most succinct place that you would see this is in Philippians chapter two, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the command to us. And then here's the promise. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And do you see how it's both? Command, work out your own, not work for, not work for your salvation, 
Work out your salvation. Because it's been done by Christ already. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, with a serious attitude, clinging to Christ soberly. For it is God who works in you. This is the promise. Both to will, to will. It is God in us willing, doing the work. To will and to work for his good pleasure. You're like, well, does, did Paul really mean that? Well, Paul speaks like this all over the place. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, and it's almost just kind of like in passing, but listen to how he speaks. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I, listen, I worked harder than them all, working out his salvation with fear and trembling. He says, I worked harder than them all, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Like, why, why does Paul go out of his way to speak like this? That, yeah, I'm working, but, you know, Christ, it's actually God's grace working in me. Like, is he just trying to sound super spiritual? No, this is the reality of how it works. This is the reality of the Christian life. The reason the Bible talks like this is because this is how it works. Is that the Holy Spirit is now in us to pull us through, to see us through to the end. Now, in regards to perseverance, very quickly, let me just mention some very basic means by which we persevere, okay? And this perseverance happens, it's, it's not that we are earning grace, but these things are places, that they're like places where we can go to drink of God's grace, okay? So um, God himself, his, his very presence, who he is, he's like one over, like constantly flowing waterfall. He's like a Niagara of goodness and mercy and help and power and strength and peace, Whatever we may need in any situation, the question is, will we moment by moment just stay under the waterfall of who he is to endure in this life? And there's some very basic things. Prayer, the word of God, fellowship with other believers, and then ultimately, God's own discipline that he works in our life. Very, very quickly, prayer. Prayer is a means by which we come to the waterfall to help us persevere. In Jude chapter well, there is only one chapter in Jude, but Jude chapter one, verse 20, he says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Listen, praying in the Holy Spirit. So we're praying, but we're praying in the Holy Spirit with the Holy Spirit's help. Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. As we pray, we keep ourselves under the waterfall of his love, who he is. But just a few verses later in verse 24 in the book of Jude, he says, now, uh, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, both now and forever. That again, he is able to keep us to the end. The word of God, not just in us individually, but in all of us as a church, speaking it to one another. The Bible says that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Is that because God is preserving us, he has given us these means by which we can come and drink of the waterfall of who he is in order to meet him and to go forward and to exhort one another. Um, you could put it like this, and I forget, this is, I forget who said this first, but somebody other than me said what I'm about to say. Um, they said, eternal security is a community project. Eternal security is a community project. 
I believe that wholeheartedly, that we are to exhort one another to persevere to the end. The body of Christ is another means that God has given to persevere in this fight of faith. In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from, from the living God. There is in all of us still unbelief that lives. It's like that old, that old hymn says, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That there's still unbelief in us. But the writer of Hebrews goes on, he says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is why the body of Christ matters. People say, well, I, I got Jesus and that's enough. I don't need his people. I don't need his church. That's a lie. It's a total lie. We need God's people. He is the head. We are part of his body and we need the body of Christ to encourage one another and to go forward. And ultimately, why will we persevere to the end even in seasons of rebellion, even in seasons where in our hard-heartedness we're not being exhorted daily, we're not drinking from his word, we're not drinking from the means of grace of prayer? Is that ultimately God will discipline and correct those that he loves. In Hebrews chapter 12, listen, it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And, have, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Do you understand what he's saying? Saying, I don't discipline those who aren't my kids, okay? So I've used this illustration before, but you know, you saw all the kids that were up here. You know, most of mine, I had one of those, one of those in that crowd that was up here earlier was mine. Um, but if the kids are doing something crazy or something rowdy, as tends to happen sometimes, I'm not going to yell at all the kids. I'm just going to call out mine because he's the one that I'm responsible for. Because he is my son. It's the same thing. If you belong to God, if you are his son or his daughter, he is going to discipline you. Why? Because he knows how to do it perfectly and he's going to see you through to the end. Charles Spurgeon, in speaking of the perseverance of the saints, said, Oh, how I love that doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. I renounce the pulpit when I cannot preach it. For the gospel seems to be a blank desert and a howling wilderness. A gospel as unworthy of God as it, would be beneath every, as it would be beneath even my own acceptance, frail worm as I am. A gospel which saves me today and rejects me tomorrow. A gospel which puts me in Christ's family one hour and makes me a child of the devil the next. A gospel which justifies and then condemns me. A gospel which pardons me and afterward casts me into hell. Such a gospel is abhorrent to reason itself, much more to the God of the whole earth. So because God is preserving us, he is going to work in us to help us persevere. And this is why the Bible refers to it as a fight of faith. That's why we're here. It's, it's the fight that we're in today. Persevering to the end with the help of Christ, but rooted in his preserving power. Lastly, assurance. Okay, This word assurance. So preservation is God's promise to keep us. And he, does, he is very good at his job. He has never failed. Perseverance, the outworking of that preservation in our lives, that we fight the good fight of faith, we exhort one another, we stay in the word, we stay in prayer. 
and we receive the discipline of the Lord when we, when we wander. But here's what assurance is, and this is where the rubber really meets the road, and we come back to the joy, the enjoyment of who God is that I spoke of at the beginning, and thus bring him glory. Assurance is just simply our sense of conscious confidence that Christ is not going to fail in his preserving work, and that we, therefore, will persevere by his grace. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this. He says, assurance is the conscious confidence that we are in right relationship with God through Christ. Very simple. He goes on and he says, it is the confidence that we have been justified and accepted by God in Christ, regenerated by the Spirit and adopted into his family, and that through faith in him we will be kept for the day when our justification and adoption are consummated at the regeneration of all things. Now, this assurance, what I'm talking about here, this assurance is for lack of a better word, although I use it carefully, is somewhat subjective. Now, hear me. It's, our preservation is not subjective, it's objective. The perseverance of the saints who are preserved by God is also objective. It's going to happen. But this sense of assurance, when I talk about conscious confidence, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the idea of the day-to-day interacting, is that even though God is going to preserve you if you are in Christ, and you, by his grace, are going to persevere, Many of us live with a lack of assurance, a lack of confidence, a lack of conscious confidence in who he is. And thus, deep inside, we're afraid and we're unsure. We lack confidence in God's saving ability and therefore we are not bold in our witness or in our practical life of faith. When God called Joshua and the nation of Israel to finally go in after 40 years of wandering because of their disobedience to go in and conquer the land. The first thing he told him is, he said, listen, Moses, my servant, is dead. <laughs> in other words, I know Moses was a great guy, just a man, he's dead. And he goes, you, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And folks, every day as we live this Christian life, We have got to be strong and courageous in the love of God for us. There is no other way to live this life victoriously. There is no other way to bring glory to God. Not arrogance, but confidence. Again, with with my boys, but anybody who's ever coached a sport, (coughs) there's a fine line sometimes between arrogance and confidence. Arrogance you know, again, we got all boys in our house, except for Mama, who deals with the boys. Um, there's just a lot of trash talk sometimes. Arrogance. Not what I'm talking about. And I admit that I may partake every now and then in that as well. Not arrogance, but you got to have confidence. Because if you've ever tried to play a sport or do something and, and you're timid, and you lack confidence, it is not going to go well. In the same way in this Christian life, no, 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 we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not arrogance, but we do do it with confidence. Because Jesus Christ has never failed, ever. And he is not going to fail in your life if you belong to him. Assurance, this sense of conscious confidence that I believe the Bible wants us to live in. I want to be really clear here. I want you to hear me. <clears throat> this sense of assurance, the daily practical confidence that God is not going to leave us and see us through to the end, it ultimately comes 
only from the Holy Spirit, from God himself. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 carefully. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So again, don't have time to unpack all this, but remember, how we, we keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit, same Holy Spirit he's talking about here. What's the Holy Spirit crying out inside of us? Abba, Father, God, I need you. That's a mark of your salvation is that now your eyes are turned upward. And we cry out to God. That's the Spirit. So now listen. The Spirit himself, it, it, the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are created, as I already said, body, soul, and spirit. We have a spirit. When we become born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside our spirit. As we are led by the Spirit of God, as we pray, as we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, when it says bears witness, he gives us assurance. The Spirit himself gives us assurance that sense of conscious confidence that we are children of God. The word for bears witness here in the Greek is simmartirio. You can hear the word martyr in it. Martyr simply means witness. Usually when we use the word martyr, we're speaking of somebody who is a witness even to the point of death for Jesus Christ, willing to give up their life as a witness for Jesus Christ and not renounce their faith. The spirit with that same type of blood earnestness wants to bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And as we live day by day, moment by moment, filled with the Holy Spirit, being led by the Spirit of God, we gain a conscious confidence that we belong to him. We're not becoming his children. That reality is objectively true. But as we walk in the Spirit, we gain that conscious confidence that we belong to him. And therefore, we can live lives that honor and glorify him. These three terms, very quickly, preservation, perseverance, and assurance. Preservation is like the block in the foundation of a house or a building. Perseverance is like the framing, the lumber that goes on top of that block. And assurance is just simply the cosmetic part that we see, maybe the wallpaper or the paint or the, or the siding or the landscaping outside or, or, or whatever. Um, you cannot switch those around. Our hope, what needs to be in the foundation is our trust in the preserving work of Christ, that he is interceding for us and going to see us through to the end. Built upon that preserving work is the framing of our perseverance, that we day by day follow Jesus because of this certain preserving work of Christ. And then our assurance is the confident part, or the confidence that we should have, that people should see from our lives. Why? Because Christ is at the foundation. He has never failed. Um, I think I shared this story before, but several years ago, several years ago, we were living down on Ragersville Road, uh, and I was upstairs in a little house that we were renting, and I was playing guitar. The boys were little. I was just up there playing guitar, and it was stormy outside. Clouds were rolling in. Hannah comes up, and she's like, ah, I think it's, I think we should maybe go down to the basement. 
the weather doesn't look real good. And I glanced outside, and I was like, and I, I kid you not, this is exactly how it happened. I was like, ah, we'll be fine. You know, classic man answer. Ah, we'll be fine. And I kid you not, as soon as I said that, a tornado dropped. Woof, we saw it drop. And, uh, and we ran to, <laughs> to the basement. Um, she was right, as usual. Um, and then it was down in that basement that I'd never really paid attention before. But it was while we were in the basement as the tornado, we just saw it down the road and we were in the midst of the storm that began to look around and I hope this foundation's secure. I hope this block is not going anywhere. And folks, at the, we have times in our lives where tornadoes come and storms hit and things are difficult. And I just ask you this morning, what's at the foundation? What do you got at the bottom? Do you have your church going there? Do you have the fact that, well, I grew up in church and, you know, I was basically born in church and mom and dad always took me to church? What's at the foundation? As we sang earlier, Christ alone is the cornerstone. But if he's at the foundation of your life, you're secure. You are going to be safe. Joel Beakey, just very practically speaking here, speaking of assurance, um, sums up what I'm trying to say. He says, assurance is not essential to being of the faith, but it is essential for the well-being of your faith. In other words, just because you lack confidence doesn't mean that you're not saved. But as we follow the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit wants to bear witness with our spirit that, we're, that we belong to him. Again, I want to sit in this just one more t- with just one more illustration here. I've shared this with you before, but D.A. Carson uses this example. He says, imagine the children of Israel on the night before Passover. And the death angel is going to come and kill all the firstborn of the land. There's going to be judgment because of sin. Their only hope is to put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. And that's the same hope that we have. It's the blood of Jesus, faith in that sacrifice. That's all we got. But he says, imagine two Jewish men speaking the night of the Passover before it happens. And one says, man, this is, this is pretty crazy stuff. I mean, oh, I don't know, man. I'm really scared. This is, this is totally making me nervous. And the other one goes, not me. I'm trusting in the blood of the lamb. Just totally confident. Now hear me. Both those men, one confident or one not confident, one very confident, both put the blood over the doorpost, which one will be saved? Both of them. Both of them. But one was going to get through the night with confidence, and the other one probably in dread. This is what God wants for your life. This is what I want to offer you and call you to believe this morning. Not just that you're saved by the blood of the Lamb, but that you can have confidence in it. And that you don't have to live in fear. Um, I need to stop. Time is getting away here. Worship team, you can come up. And we'll close. Just a couple questions as they come and as we stand and as we sing. Number one, 
this morning or in this season of your life? Is the word of God dwelling richly in you? This, this book is full of promises for his people. It is day by day clinging to these promises that gets us through. As I've already showed you, not only getting into it for ourselves, but sharing it with one another. This was just kind of a, uh, a random thing that happened. I had texted Rebecca Miller about something, um, a question I had for her uh, earlier this week, and then we began to interact a little bit via text. And she'd mentioned just in her text that she had been meditating upon Isaiah 12 that morning and, uh, and all the good promises that were in there. And I wish I could say, oh, I know what Isaiah 12 says. I wasn't sure what Isaiah 12 said. So I picked up my Bible and I went to Isaiah 12. And again, these promises are true for God's people. The Bible says that all his promises are yes in Christ Jesus for those who are in Christ let me just read them to you. He says, You will say in that day, I will give you thanks to you. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now here's what happened. She probably didn't even mean to do this, but Rebecca exhorted me. Just by sharing where she was at in the word of God, it caused me to turn to the word of God and to cling to those promises. And those promises helped me get through that day. We need the word of God to be dwelling richly in all of us. Secondly, this morning as we close, are you in this season living with an intentionally hard heart? I can't answer that question for you this morning. That's between you and God. I want to say this. Every single believer, even those who have been truly born again by the Spirit of God, we go through seasons where God begins to work on us and pull something out of us and he wants to form us into the image of Christ and it is the common experience of every single person in this room that we resist it at times. Stop. Stop resisting. Trust him. Trust that your good heavenly Father is working something good for you. If you find yourself this morning with a hard, unbelieving heart towards the things of Christ, even though you know that you're a believer, a couple things. Number one, you are robbing yourself of joy. Number two, you are robbing God of glory. But number three, I promise you that the cross of Christ is enough if you'll just come to him again today and trust him. And lay, it down at his, and lay it down at his feet. I am absolutely amazed. Let me just say this in closing. I'll be done. I've been following Jesus, trying to follow Jesus for about 22 years. Um, almost 22 years this month. 
And I've not always tried to, although there's been times where I've been definitely hard-hearted and resistant to what he's wanted to do in my life. But I can still say this, is that in those 22 years, even though I haven't always wanted to, I have failed him every single day. I have failed him every single day. But he has never, never once has he failed me. Never once. How many of you could say that this morning? Never once. And my encouragement to you as we close is I, I think that I guess for me the longer you walk with the Lord and his spirit bears witness with your spirit that we're children of God you just kind of come to a place where speaking practically of assurance and that conscious confidence you know what <laughs> if he's not giving up on me yet I don't think he's going to amen he's not going to and I want you to know that this morning. Is you may be here today and you are certain that you've just, you've gone too far. That this time he's going to cut you out of his family. He will not. He loves you. Come to him this morning and believe that. Christ, Jesus, we come before you and we love you. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. We ask God that you would help us to trust your promises. Help us to believe in the power of your Holy Spirit this morning that you have never failed and that you will never fail. And that you will not fail in your work of conforming us to the image of Christ. I pray for those that are fearful this morning. I pray for those that could not maybe describe their practical day-to-day -day relationship with you as one of confidence and assurance. I pray especially for them that you would let them know your love for them, that you would again pour your love into their hearts by your Holy Spirit. It is in you that we stand, Jesus. You are our cornerstone and we love you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Yes.